going to ignore actually all the ones that are not. So this morning before the lunch break, we already had a lot of interesting issues that we were discussing in terms of what's feasible with uh, stated evaluation um, and what's not feasible, what we can expect, what not, and what challenges still lie ahead, plenty of those. Um, in the afternoon, we have a second panel which will delve into some of these issues uh, in more detail and particularly for specific um, either technology areas or for specific schemes. So we have on the one hand, we have uh, Professor Pantelis Kutrumpis yeah, <laughs> uh, from Imperial College London, which will have a look at schemes, particularly for the digital and, and for broadband. Um, we will have Georg Sachmann, which will have a look at schemes in the sector of energy um, and climate change. And then we have, um, uh, and Georg is a senior fellow here at Bruegel. And then we have Professor Otto Toivanen from the University of Leuven and the University of Helsinki, which will look more at the specifics of uh, schemes for research uh, and innovation. Uh, I don't want to take too much of the floor again, since we are already in a tight schedule anyway. So I'm going to give the floor to Pantelis for... Thank you. So uh, I'm Pantelis Katrumbis, I'm an economist from Imperial College. I've been looking into broadband investments in the EU for the past few years. And in this presentation, I would like to discuss in some detail uh, some impact evaluation methods and what we've seen so far in, in broadband networks. Perhaps related to the previous uh, discussion we had, the previous panel, um, I would like to, to raise an issue in terms of what we mean uh, methods for the application of treatments and methods in terms of evaluation of the state aid. So previously we sort of had a, uh, a blurred image of uh, not being able to use econometrics for designing the interventions and for evaluating the interventions. I think that the, we need to focus on the evaluation, which is how we test uh, whether we have applied the treatments in, in a way that we have an effect and not whether the policy was right in the first place. This is not what uh, the econometrics will answer uh, if we don't use it in, in, the, in the right way. Um, so. Okay, shall I? Uh... <laughs> okay, well. So, um, so far we've seen that uh, broadband networks have had a, there's, there's a broad consensus that broadband networks have had a, an economic impact uh, across economies in the world, uh, predominantly in Europe. We found that they increase GDP, they increase uh, productivity, there's a cost reduction, a reduction of inefficiencies, and there is, uh, there's also some evidence uh, about imp improvements in happiness and subject subjective well-being. This means that people that are uh, better connected and share more with each other feel better. So we see that there's some added value with the use of the broadband networks. Now, in light of, this, of these findings, back in 2010, the Commission decided to uh, launched the digital agenda for Europe with three main targets, um, one of which has al already uh, passed, which was for 2015, but the remaining two are to cover, uh, to provide to every European citizen 30 megabps of connection by 2020, that is 100% of the population, and for 50% of the population to cover them uh, with 100 megabits of connection. These targets have been uh, sufficiently loose in the, in the interpretation. It, we, we did not really know whether this was intended for advertised speeds or for actual speeds or for download or the mix of download and upload speeds. 
But given the mix of technologies that is required to achieve those targets, um, we embarked together with colleagues from the European Investment Bank uh, a few years ago to an assessment exercise of the total cost of this intervention. So given that we know that broadband networks have a good uh, economic output and impact on GDP and productivity, we wanted to see what the cost would be to the EU economy to achieve those targets. So the cost was estimated at around 200 billion euros for uh, all countries uh, to achieve those targets. Of course, it was vast heterogeneity among countries because there were different developmental levels. Um, subsequently, we decided with uh, the colleagues from the bank to, to see and test whether investing this amount of money, if the market would not be ready to do so, would have a, a, an, an economic impact on the EU economy. And we devised some, uh, some plans and some uh, scenarios to see what would happen if this money was invested today uh, and the, the networks were in place by 2020. So what we found was that there is an increase in GDP at the baseline scenario, which was relatively pessimistic, of about 30% uh, uh, of, of the money invested. So uh, other things being equal, we would find that this money would be returned by 2020 uh, with a premium of 30%. So the business case was there. So if things were so good and things are so nice, why, why this was not happening? Why are we not putting 200 billion euros down uh, to get this very nice returns on investment? So the problem is that as in all cases of state aid evaluation and, and in all cases of uh, economic interventions, we have to understand in detail how the market operates and who, what the stakeholders are in for and what is happening, who is actually appropriating those returns. Because we're assuming that because there's going to be an increase in the GDP of the European economy, this means that the operators, the, the ones that deploy the networks, are the ones that are going to reap uh, these benefits. But things are, are, are not uh, exactly like that. Um, now, this is what the operators see. So for, uh, to achieve those targets, we need to, to deploy uh, fiber to the home networks. These are very expensive fiber networks that go uh, at the doorstep of its house, uh, a fiber connection. So we replace the existing cable lines or the existing copper lines with fiber. And the cost curve increases as we go to uh, rural and, and, and less densely populated areas. So the market mechanisms would be willing, as, as far as we see, to cover perhaps the majority or the 50% of the households without any intervention. So we're, we can get rid perhaps of 50% of this amount just by, by market forces alone. So this is one of the reasons why we shouldn't be looking into uh, um, putting this money down from public subsidies and trying to see what the market forces will achieve. There's another 20 or 25% that uh, the market mechanisms are likely to cover because we uh, appreciate that there's, it's not just only population densities that uh, um, depend on the decisions of whether to, to cover an area, but th there are other socioeconomic parameters that are taken into account. Now, for the last 10%, there, the cost increases dramatically, so it's almost quadruples compared to what is happening in, in large areas. So the intervention is necessary in, in these areas. So if we need to, the question here is not whether the, the decision to cover them is right, but if we need to cover them, then we, ne we certainly need an intervention. Now, moving beyond that, um, we've looked into both fixed and, uh, and mobile uh, networks uh, across Europe and the US. Um, and we've done so by using some sort of big data. 
what we wanted to understand is whether the supply side of the networks is uh, the problematic one, so whether the operators are not interested to deliver those networks, or whether there's something that we're, we're perhaps missing. And what we found in, in this case is that uh, the distance from the base station, that is the distance from the antenna, is uh, a, very <coughs> a very important determinant of uh, uh, household uh, coverage. So by looking into six uh, north, uh, northeastern states in, in, uh, in the EU, we found <coughs> So the experiment is the following. We go into six northeastern states in the, in the, uh, in the US, and we look into how well these, uh, these states are covered. So by finding the, the correlation between the income of the household and the coverage of, of the mobile networks, we realize that the distance from the base station is not determined only by the uh, population density, as we initially thought but it was determined by income itself. So we would move from areas that are very well covered in rural districts because they had high incomes, and we would realize that suburban districts and, and urban districts that had very low incomes could not really uh, make uh, the, the, the market uh, case. So in, in, this, in this equilibrium, we have to include incomes on the demand side as well as population densities on the supply side. Moving beyond that, when we do the impact evaluation, we have to think very carefully about the methods that we will use. So the holy grail in, in impact evaluation is the randomized control trial. So if we were in uh, a situation where we could apply uh, uh, life sciences techniques, so in vivo or in vitro experimentation, we would separate the samples, uh, the treatment and the control groups, and we would apply the treatments irrespectively. This, this means that we have random samples, and this means that we can use them in a way that we can you know, isolate them in a laboratory condition. Now, this is not happening in, in real life, and this is why we're using pseudo-experimental exper pseudo um, methods, which are uh, pseudo-RCTs. Now, there are three options in pseudo-experimental uh, uh, methods. The first one, which has been mentioned before, is to use instrumental variables. This, this means that when we are regressing broadband, um, say, speed or broadband coverage against GDP, what we are trying to take is the effect that comes from GDP to, to broadband. So we want to find an instrument that takes all the endogeneity of the broadband variable and attribute, attribute that to, to the instrument itself. Um, the selection of the instrument, the strength of the instrument, and all this process is not very clear, and this is why we've generally tried to move beyond IVs and, and, and incorporate difference in difference techniques or our regression discontinuity designs. And in fact, we've, we've, we've done so. We have um, an experiment in, in the impact of broadband speed on uh, household capitalization prices in England. So what happens in the regression discontinuity design and what differs in the case of having just uh, a, a treatment and a control group is that you have to draw a boundary, draw a semantic boundary or a physical boundary which means that we have two areas where we intervene. One is the area uh, which is con the control area, and the other is the treatment area. Instead of looking what happens across those areas, we, we look at what happens across the boundary of these areas. So if it's, it's a physical boundary, we take the distance from the boundary and see the effect and how it ranges across those two, those two, um, those two regions. So we did that um, in, in, a, in an experiment in the UK. 
where we used more than one million properties and property prices actually, and a lot of detail about how we evaluate the impact of broadband speed. And we also used three million speed tests to assess the impact of speed on property prices. So in this process, we do we, we design a, a hedonic model, which is uh, often used in the literature. So on, on, on the one side, we have the property price, and on the right side, we have the determinants of the price, so the number of bedrooms, the, the area, the locational characteristics, plus broadband speed. So by design of the, of the network, we build those areas uh, based on how well they are covered uh, by, the, by the local operator. So this network was designed uh, almost a century ago, and there are these uh, um, local distribution points, as they are called, the local exchanges, that determine what speed your household will get uh, for, for depend on what speed the, the household will get in the future. So if, for example, we're across two regions, and one has been upgraded with ADSL, and the other has not been upgraded with the, the ADSL, if you have two households lying exactly on the boundary, the only difference they have, so they're exactly at the same road, okay? And the, the only difference they have is that they, they have the same number of bedrooms, same number of bathrooms, the same locational characteristics, but the broadband speed. So what you want to spot, and this is how you evaluate the impact, is to see the discontinuity. And this is precisely what we did. So this is um, how you design the, the, the intervention. Before the speed upgrade, if you look across the boundaries and the distance from the local exchange boundary in the top, oh, top left-hand side, you see that there's no change in the speeds. And then in the post, uh, post period, after the first upgrade in the treated area, we have the increase in speed. So this is what we're playing with. This is the lever that we have. This is the intervention. Now, what we're measuring is the property prices. So beforehand, the property prices were almost connected to each other at the boundary. So you could see no discontinuity at this point. Of course, if you move away from the boundary, this is expected. You, you don't have the same property prices. But then after the intervention, you see a genuine discontinuity. And also, we see the maintenance of, of, of the curvature of, of the line, of the slope of the line. So the line stays the same because other locational characteristics remain the same, but the intervention itself had had an impact on that. So we can say that this is a genuine effect, and it's kind of reassuring that the slope of the curve is, is sort of maintained. Um, sorry. Yeah. So what we found is that Yes, broadband speed does matter. So we see that there is a capitalization effect. There is a willingness to pay. So individuals would have to, if, if they had to choose between a house with a higher price, they would pay more for this. For this. So this um, demand side uh, component of, of the broadband effect is there. And if you see, for example, um, across ADSL and ADSL2+, we can say that at the mean of the distribution, 3% of the property price depends on uh, broadband speed. And if we go to a super fast broadband speed, which is the ADSL2+, this rises up to 4%. Um, there's also vast heterogeneity across regions. So if you go to London, for example, the, the effects rise up to seven, six or 7% of the property price, which is a, a substantial amount if you consider the cost of just upgrading a house with, uh, with fiber and the cost of a property in London. Um, but at the same time, uh, if you go into rural areas, this, this, uh, this case is not actually uh, supported. The, 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 the cost is not covered uh, by the willingness to pay by individuals. So since we realize that there is, you know, there is a business case there, so people are willing to pay for that, and if there's also a, a demand and a supply case, supply side case, we wanted to run what we call the counterfactual. So 
if we left the market to evolve on its own until 2020 and didn't do anything, how many of these uh, properties would be below that speed threshold? So by knowing how the speeds will evolve for the next uh, years, because we know about the plans of the operators, how many would fall off of that uh, 30 megabps target? Now, by doing that, we did that at the, at the local exchange level. And we found that there, there are cases of that require the intervention both in urban, both in suburban and rural areas. So it was not just a rural problem. It was um, a problem that was happening across the board. And in fact, if we only think about the speed upgrade benefit, which is just giving people a higher speed rather than just connecting everyone to higher speeds, uh, we end up seeing that um, the speed upgrade benefit is covered only in urban areas. So what is happening is that there's going to be, in 2020, without any intervention, about 850,000 houses in the UK that would not get the, would not meet the target, and these are in, in actual urban areas, and they're, they're far less uh, so in suburban and rural areas. And the underlying assumption here is that we're not really connecting anyone. We're not interpreting the targets as connecting people to the network, even if they don't want to. We're just keeping those connected and giving them the speed uplift that the, the target requires and necessitates. So it's, it's, a, it's a different interpretation. If we now go to measure the impact of the coverage upgrade, so get people that don't use it, don't have any, any reason to use it, and connect them to the network, the, 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 the benefits are skyrocketing. So you can see that the coverage upgrade benefits for all regions clearly cover uh, the, the base case. So it's all about using the services, using and understanding how, how well we can, um, we can earn things from, from having broadband access. So one question is, given that the speed upgrade benefit is actually beneficial even in urban areas, why isn't this uh, happening? Why isn't this actually, uh, you know, why aren't operators doing that? Well, as far as we realize, the, the, the answer to that is that this is a coordination problem. So as long as the, the, the telecommunications markets are competitive and as long as the uh, operators are pricing at the mar marginal speed and at the, margin at the marginal cost, uh, they're not making any rents out of, uh, out of this situation. So the ones that appropriate the benefits in, in property prices are the landlords themselves. They're not the, the operators. So given that the landlords cannot coordinate and uh, find ways to you know, increase the investment in higher broadband speeds, it ends up that almost 850,000 houses in, in London are not uh, upgraded. So another component that was interesting in that study was that the services complement broadband value. So the value in, in broadband speeds comes from the services per se and, and, and not the speed, and not, the, you know, not the, the copper line or the fiber line that uh, runs to every house. So we compared the uh, marginal effect of speed, the capitalization effect on every house, uh, by separating the, uh, the properties uh, in places where retailers were delivering online orders, by places where Uber was available or Amazon evening delivery, and we clearly saw that the distribution of, of, uh, of the property prices was shifted to the right. And in fact, it was shifted to the right even more so in areas where there was a lot of coverage of this service. So the, the complementarities of the service availability are something that the policymakers should look after because these are the ones that drive the value and the willingness to pay and these make, make some of the investments much more valuable than we, what we initially thought, for example, covering some uh, remote areas in, in villages. And, yeah. 
And this, this is uh, before I conclude for, uh, um, for, the, for this session. Um, I wanted to say that um, it's necessary before uh, getting into any conclusions about how we evaluate uh, state aid to have very clear questions and targets. So it is extremely important to know uh, what questions we're asking the models to answer uh, and how we plan to you know, assess those, uh, those questions. The second is that the methods are there. So there's, there's a bunch of methods, cross-experimental. I don't think there's, there's a need to have um, any more advanced templates uh, than the existing ones that we use. Uh, but it all depends on how the selection process is done and whether, for example, there was a, a comment previously on the, whether there's a, a control group, an, you know, an adequate control group to apply the methods. So the method is not problematic. The problem is that we don't have the control group. Um, more, 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 more than so, I think that frequent and big and spatiotemporal data are required. So if you have the data and the methods, there's nothing that uh, prevents from, from using those uh, state aid evaluations in every, in every aspect. So I, one of the main arguments I have about uh, state aid evaluation is that we need to co collect more data, collect them in, in, in a consistent way, uh, have spatiotemporal data, and have a common template uh, for, for uh, experimental methods. Now, the controls for locational and time varying specificities are something that the econometricians are, are capable to, to deal with. So this is about the methods more uh, than the data or, uh, or the countries that are applied. And also, the counterfactual should be targeted uh, within and across countries, but in a unified EU environment. So if we're talking about public money that is spent from the EU budget, this has to be extrapolated to the entire European Union, not just specific countries, not just specific regions. Thank you. This was, a, I think, a very nice uh, illustration on how, if, uh, how the interplay between data and, and techniques plays out very strongly. Uh, here we can get only the maximum out of the best techniques if we have the data available. But if you have the data available, then you can get a lot of uh, out of um, the techniques uh, here. So uh, I propose we uh, wait a bit for the discussion unless there are some very specific issues on the digital before we go first to the, to the other applications, which is the green sector or the... Uh, research and innovation one. I'm not sure which one will show up now, but we'll see. Well, maybe none. <laughs> Is anyone? Yeah. Pick whatever you want, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> so this is part of an experimental setup <laughs> to see how a random allocation of slides will uh, have an effect on the impact. <laughs> okay, so it's Georg. That's <laughs> me. Um, okay, I will not talk about the the econometric studies we did on uh, uh, on evaluation, uh, like the uh, the one on the emission trading systems impact on um, carbon reductions and competitiveness, or how renewables affect um, support affect innovation, or how benefits of broadband depend on complementarity uh, of uh, factors like education. But I would like to take a step back and and 
just share three messages um, and try to be a bit provocative uh, after lunch. Um, the first one, it's very difficult to, co uh, to defend competition and, and state aid rules and everything in very badly designed markets, which uh, I'll try to show you in the example of energy markets. The second one is that for me, renewable support should ultimately be about innovation and not so much about mere deployment. And the first uh, and the last thing is that in terms of energy efficiency, I think um, we should really try to much better do benchmarking of the energy efficiency policies in terms of additionality and cost. I think it's completely um, um, underdone at the moment. Okay, um, talking about electricity. Um, what we see, so electricity sectors are quite important share of the um, of the European economy. It's about two to three percent of GDP, and the uh, the triggering down cost to energy intensive sectors are more substantial. So we're not talking about smaller things. And what we see here is that the role of markets in the last years has been shrinking massively in the electricity sector. So just to give you one example from uh, Germany, in 2015, the support for renewables was about 20 billion euros. In contrast, the value uh, of, the, of the electricity that has been sold at the German power exchange, so all the electricity in Germany was 15 billion euros. So it was less than the support schemes paid for the, uh, for the renewables. And on the, uh, the right-hand side, you see um, uh, de uh, development of the last five, uh, last ten years in the cost components of the electricity sectors. What you see is that the cost of renewable support have increased by about 200 percent. The cost of support to uh, combined heat and power and offshore have increased by 250 percent. The network tariffs have increased by almost 50 percent and are going to increase further. All this is based on national regulation, so it's nationally regulated things. It's no market whatsoever. By contrast, there are two European markets. That's the wholesale market for electricity, in which you can kind of trade, uh, electri uh, buy uh, kilowatt hours of electricity. This wholesale price has fallen by, uh, by 50% in the last uh, uh, 10 years to now something like 25, 26 euro per megawatt hour, which is not sufficient to, uh, to incentivize any investments. And the carbon price has dropped even further, so the European emission trading system is currently about that. So, in my view, we don't have an electricity market anymore. What we have is policymakers uh, have an outcome in terms of uh, electricity sector investment in mind. They want a certain fuel mix, they want a certain volume of electricity produced inside their country, and then they micromanage the incentives and call it still a market. Que uh, question here is, um, well, uh, how should state aid then uh, deal with that? Okay, somebody switched off these slides. Um, no, it's, I'm not it's too... your electricity that was. Yeah. Oh, but that's working. <laughs> Guess I'm too provocative. Uh, <laughs> um, then the role of prices and markets in the current electricity system. Um, <laughs> no worry, I'm getting warm. Um, what we. Um, Okay. The <laughs> um, market works well. Let's see if they come on. <laughs> so then, on the um, that's on the kind of the uh, investment and and the wholesale side. On the other side of the spectrum of what goes into the system, so the the prices that are paid for electricity, the prices for electricity are not essentially kind of 
built on um, on market signals, so there is no real signal for uh, for location. There are um, insufficient signals for uh, when to produce, and um, um, what prices are mainly used for is essentially redistribution within the system. So I show here a slide that you cannot see uh, about the uh, the share of um, uh, of wholesale, uh, no, the share that uh, household consumers are paying into the electricity system compared to the share of consumption of household consumers. And it varies largely between countries. So in some countries, uh, consumers are paying 70% more into the system than their um, than the cost of the uh, 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 than the than their share in the consumption. In other countries, it's different. So, what I want to tell is, prices are not really there for um, for giving the right economic signals for investment and uh, uh, and usage. But they are very often used as redistributive tools in the electricity sector. And just one interesting uh, example we uh, we see recently, and uh, I would be happy to discuss that afterwards, is the is the German lignite reserve, uh, where um, where German uh, lignite power plant producers have been granted several billions of uh, uh, of euros from uh, from essentially the ratepayers' money in order to uh, to shut their lignite-fired uh, power plants down earlier, um, which in my view doesn't make any um, uh, any sense. Now, that brings me to the, to the main question essentially you should ask yourself, what is, what is the role of this market? So where, why do we still need the electricity market? Well, you can argue, yes, we need it for optimal usage. If the price is a bit higher, then you switch on a different type of power plant. But actually, I can look into all power plants in the European Union and run a little computer program on my laptop and essentially manage which power plant is cheaper and more expensive and let it run. So for that, I, I do not essentially need a market. The second one is finding the best operator for the politically determined system. I think that's still happening. So if you uh, want a certain share of uh, wind turbines in, in Germany, the market still selects kind of the, the, uh, the, uh, the operator that are uh, cheapest to, uh, to do that. But what the market does not deliver is the optimal portfolio. So the portfolio is predetermined politically. It does not do cross-border optimization. So we will have a completely overbuilt system in the European Union. So all countries will have more power plants than they need, simply because they want to be sure of themselves. And we don't get any innovative solutions anymore from that. Philosophical question at the end, uh, does these efficiency gains still justify paying market interest rates. So what we are doing is we are paying commercial operators market interest rates, including a political risk premium that is quite substantial, for building something that policymakers already have in mind to, uh, to be built. Um, so uh, can we then not renationalize the whole thing and get it uh, like 3% cheaper? Um, and the question for this workshop is what's the role of competition policy in, uh, in this setting? Okay, um, then on the uh, on the second thing on uh, on renewable support scheme because I sounded now quite critical of uh, of support schemes, but actually uh, I am less so. Um, low carbon technologies are urgently needed to achieve the two degrees target because by 2050 we have to reduce carbon emissions by 60 percent in the developed world by 80 percent, which means that essentially all energy. Uh, uh, production will have to come from low carbon sources um, and that will require 
the current low carbon technologies and new low carbon technologies to become competitive with fossil fuels. But not only in Europe, everywhere. That means we need to develop technologies that can keep Chinese coal underground. And that's the, the big challenge. And there's a number of externalities in that. There is a technology externality or innovation uh, externality that uh, Otto is probably also talking about. There is an externality in terms of technologies that make domestic decarbonization cheaper, that are underfinanced because our carbon price is too low. And then there is a kind of external decarbonization externality because global emissions is a global good. And here the problem is that uh, many other countries do not even have a carbon price so far. So there are three externalities that would uh, uh, justify having strong tools for helping to bring down the cost of low carbon technologies, so for, uh, for giving state aid to them. And on top of that, for the EU industry, low carbon technologies like wind and solar seem to be um, interesting uh, areas in which we have some comparative advantage and we are already selling a lot of those technologies to other countries and we might want to do so in the future. So what to do to, uh, to uh, bring down the cost of, uh, of low carbon technologies? There are essentially three policies. The first one is pricing carbon, so having a stable and well-functioning emission trading system. And the current emission trading system, as I said, do uh, does not work very well, so we have to improve that. The second policy is supporting deployment. So what we see here is that we, uh, for example, in, uh, in Germany, about 20 uh, billion euros per year are spent on, uh, on supporting deployment. So most of the money in supporting uh, low carbon technologies goes into, uh, into this field. We indeed find an impact of that. So if you support deployment, you're getting more, uh, more patents in the, uh, in the deployed areas. Um, uh, it's very necessary to, to really uh, go through the valley of this of, uh, of technologies. Question is how much and at which point in time. And the third policy is, uh, is public R&D spending. And again, if you spend more on public R&D, you get more patents in the area, um, which is also quite natural. So all these three policies together make sense to, uh, to increase innovation. Um, the question is how to make it smarter, because we are spending dozens of billions per year on those, uh, uh, on those three policies. So we have uh, come up with a, uh, with a policy briefing uh, lately uh, in which we essentially argue, well, you have to combine the policies, you have to improve carbon pricing as one of the essential things, and uh, what we think is an, a very interesting area for research, but also for policymakers, is to increase transparency and competition of the technology choice decisions, because there are implicit technology choice decisions made in the member states and also at the European level, and they are often not very transparent. They are winner-picking, and improving there could save uh, billions of, uh, of euros or in, uh, improve results. The last point I want to make is on energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is, uh, is hugely complex. So uh, there is a database of the EU which lists about 1,322 uh, here, maybe now more energy efficiency policies in the member states and in the EU. Um, what is a bit unfortunate is we, uh, we looked into, uh, uh, into some of those things and for many of them we do not find the cumulative savings uh, that, uh, that they project. So there is no real ex-ante analysis of how much savings they can do, how much cost they will have and 
then it's quite difficult to uh, to calculate which ones of them are really uh, are really worthwhile. Um, we, for for the sake of the argument, compared them to the uh, to the current cost of uh, of oil, which is about fifty uh, fifty dollar per barrel. And you see, if you do the unit cost in terms of million euros paid per petajoule. Um, Oil today is still as much cheaper than many of the energy efficiency policies. So we uh, we have to be much smarter here. And what I would call for is essentially to to rethink energy efficiency policies first in terms of um, additionality. So really make sure that what we uh, what we pay here gives additional energy savings and not look so much into million tons of oil equivalent uh, uh, used or not used. And the second one is to uh, to look uh, really on this uh, on this cost and uh, and benefit criteria more, and really try to for all of those 1,300 policies come up with this evaluation to learn more from neighbors, because I think it's an area where policy learning is still uh, very much needed. Um, just one example from the U.S., the, the largest energy efficiency program in the U.S., the housing weatherization program, has been found in, an, in a nice econometric study by uh, Catherine Wolfram to, uh, to not be uh, worthwhile in, uh, in terms of cost. So it's, uh, um, it's an impressive area to, uh, to do more research. So just to, uh, to conclude again, I think in badly designed markets, it's very difficult to defend, uh, defend Competition, so we need to improve market design there first before we can really do something about state aid. The second thing is um, renewable support, not so much about deployment, but about the innovation, because that's the um, uh, that's the main impact that is uh, that is helping to uh, to keep the uh, the planet cool. And uh, in terms of energy efficiency, we should look more into uh, into uh, additionality and cost and try to benchmark all the different pol uh, policies better in order to not only uh, deliver on energy efficiency, but also deliver on learning about how to design good policies. Thank you. Thank you, Georg. That was indeed a very provocative uh, message, uh, but it's a very clear message, is uh, how to make actually support for renewables or for energy more effective if we could at the same time also have better designed markets and, and better uh, signals from pricing. It's definitely an issue we will uh, be able to discuss after. But first, we give the floor to Otto, who will talk more about the specifics of uh, schemes for research and innovation. Otto? Thanks, Reinhilde. Thanks for the invitation. Now we wait for my slides, I guess. You can also talk about yeah, I can talk on other slides, <laughs> but uh, it's even less informative than if I had my own slides. So here we go. Um, thanks also to DGCOM for uh, co competition for having this initiative on uh, state aid evaluation. So what I'm going to do is slightly different from uh, the two gentlemen before me. Uh, that means I, I cannot use this thing. There we go. It's just slow. So uh, I'm going to frame my discussion in terms of so public support to private R&D, because that's uh, one of the areas of state aid that, uh, that I know at least something about. Uh, but all the things that I'm going to discuss, I, to my understanding, come up no matter what the state aid that you're interested in. So they will be in slightly different disguises, maybe under slightly different names, but they will nonetheless crop up. Uh, and, and the underlying theme is going to be that uh, to do evaluation well is very similar to doing policy well, 
uh, and it's going to require a mix of inputs to achieve the goals we want to achieve. Um, so that's going to be the theme. Uh, and to get started, uh, let's look at some of the justifications for why we should spend taxpayers' money on private R&D. Uh, the first justification is that, well, the firm investing in R&D is not going to reap all the surplus from the innovation, but others also benefit. These are called spillovers, and the question is, well, what are those spillovers exactly? One type of spillover that's often mentioned is, well, you come up with something cool, I will learn about that thing, and I can utilize that knowledge in my own R&D. So knowledge spillovers to other firms, other inventors, is definitely a form of uh, spillovers. However, it could also be that I was about to invent the same thing, but you beat me to the mark. And that would actually be a negative spillover in terms of the market duplicating effort. It would have been enough for one or the other of us uh, to invest in this invention. Finally, something that people often forget, but which I think is crucial, namely consumer surplus. So think of any of the new gadgets you have now that you didn't have five or 10 or 15 years ago. You didn't buy them because you wanted to support Apple or any of the other companies providing those things. You bought them because you benefit from them. And you benefit from them more than the cost of buying them most of the times. If you don't believe me, let's play this game. You give me your mobile phone, and we sign a deal where you're not allowed to buy any other mobile phone but your own mobile phone back. And then we find a price for your mobile phone. And just answer yourselves, what is the amount of euros you're willing to give out to have a mobile phone in your life? And I bet it's higher than the number you initially paid. And you multiply that by the number of heads, and we get an idea of the consumer surplus from having a mobile phone. It's not a small one. And so all these spillovers we should take into account when figuring out whether to use taxpayers' money to support private R&D, uh, and if so, by how much. But we also want to think about who's getting those spillovers. So it's not only about there being these spillovers to the uh, society at large. To give you an idea, here's one way of... Uh, sort of uh, embodying spillovers. These are patent citations from different EU countries. Uh, and the blue bar tells you what fraction of patents in a given country, say Austria, come from the rest of EU, out of all citations within EU. And you can see that Austrian inventors, of all the knowledge that they use that comes from within EU, 80% comes from outside Austria. Similarly, the orange bar is how is the knowledge created by Austrian inventors used within the EU? And you can see that 70% of the use measured by citations is outside Austria. Okay. So Austrian invention depends on stuff that people have come up with outside Austria, way more than within Austria invention. And it benefits inventors outside Austria way more than invention within Austria. Now, if I was an Austrian taxpayer, would I want to pay for the fact that, say, Flemish inventors benefit from there being more innovation in Austria? Maybe, maybe not. But if, I, if I'm using my tax euros to pay to a civil servant whose job is to maximize Austrian consumer welfare, I would definitely want him not to spend money 
for the benefit of Flemish inventors. That's the job of Flemish civil servants. Another often cited justification, not just by civil servants, but take any of the hundred odd studies on the effects of R&D support, is financial market imperfections. These are used over and over again to justify the use of taxpayers' money. How much do we know about the effect of financial market imperfections? Well, it turns out you take those hundred odd studies and almost none of them have a theoretical model that outlines the linkages from financial market imperfections to us actually wanting to use taxpayers' money uh, to support private R&D. Turns out that when you do that in a way that's for sure imperfect, it's just way, one way of doing it, is that, yes, this can be a good idea. If the financial markets don't work perfectly, we might want to subsidize firms who don't do R&D yet to get them started. But... We might not want to finance firms who are already doing R&D. There, it could actually be that financial market imperfections are a reason to use less, not more, taxpayers' money to support private R&D. So we need economic theory to figure this out. Finally, something to understand for any policy, anywhere, anytime, is that it's not in isolation. It functions or dysfunctions in a given environment, let me call it the institutional structure. And just to give you one example out of many possible, here's a picture from uh, a piece of research of my own. And what do we have here? We have two graphs. The blue one is the number of patents to finish inventors. The red one is the number of students starting an engineering degree in Finland. And as you can see, they're highly correlated. It's 0.98, the correlation coefficient. Now, what's the catch of this picture? The catch is the red bar comes from 51 to 77, the graph, the blue one from 81 to 2007. Now, this is not causality, this is not a treatment effect. We do establish it in the paper separately. But this suggests that benefits from a policy instituted in the 50s, opening new technical universities in Finland, might have started to really reap through 30 years later. Okay? And if you evaluate Finnish innovation policy, say the good people of Tekes here dishing out taxpayers' money for private R&D, they work in an environment with the highest engineering fraction of population anywhere on the planet. And that for sure will have an impact on whether Tekes subsidies work or not. And that should be kept in mind. Additionality is a term that's intimately linked to R&D support, but it, you know, it applies in other environments as well. It's about whether one, euro, one tax euro given to a firm leads to more than one euro of R&D. Uh, out of those hundreds of papers, or more than 100 papers that I mentioned that study the impact of R&D subsidies on firm R&D, many of them concentrate on whether there was additionality or not. Now imagine you find additionality. Is your job done? Answer is no. In the end, we're interested in, does this policy enhance welfare? Yes or not? Additionality is not a sufficient statistic for that. To give you an example, admittedly provocative, but also timely, uh, Finland had this thing called the Green Mining Finland program a few years ago. 
tech has put in 7 million, the private sector 18 million. So based on this very rough back of the envelope calculation, seems there's additionality. What happened? The main beneficiary was something called the Talvira, Talvivara nickel mine. It's now so famous there's a film made by it, out of it. It's bankrupt. It has debts of 1.4 billion. Currently, it costs Finnish taxpayers 1 million per day. Last week, the government, who's ended up being the owner, decided to close it down at an estimated cost of at least 200 million. Okay. We had additionality. If you could roll back the time and decide whether or not to invest in this, would you? Well, if you say yes, I hope you would not have been hired as a Finnish civil servant deciding on this, because I was paying taxes then. Okay, then, then about this thing that we're supposedly studying, the policy. Uh, the thing to keep in mind is that textbooks start from the most natural place to start, which is that they they tell you how to study the effects of a policy that is a one-size-fits-all. Either you get the support or you don't. Yes or no, zero or one. And there's a clear outcome match to that policy. Now, that's how I start teaching it. That's the most sensible way of starting to teach about it that I know. But actual policies are not that way. And unfortunately, there's often a disconnect, so highly trained, highly intelligent, highly motivated people who start using these tools, they forget that the world is not the way it is in their textbook. And I want to show you how different it actually is. So you ought to ask yourself, well, are the support policies the same across countries if you want to compare their efficiency? What do we know about who gets R&D support? What do we know about whether it, what it means to get R&D support? What do we know about whether same firms would be treated the same way in different countries? So here are some numbers from, a, from an ongoing study uh, with so many co-authors, I can't remember all of their names. Uh, we look at R&D support policies in these five member states. And you can see in the first row we have the subsidy rate. That's the fraction of a firm's R&D that the government pays on average. And you can see it varies between 30 and 50%. Okay. Accepted amount is the budget uh, of the R&D project. And you can see that in Finland, R&D projects are small. In Spain, they're big. Uh, also notice that the firm applying for an R&D subsidy is not your average firm. So you look at the lowest row. And remember, now free government money is available. Yet we find that 10 or less percent of firms apply for subsidies in a given year. Now, you could well say that that's because so many firms don't do R&D. For sure, that's true. But in all of these countries, roughly half of the firms claim to do R&D in a given year. Yet, you don't see a 0.5 anywhere on the lowest row. So firms, for some reason, don't apply for free government money. We want to understand why that is. 
What happens if you get money? Is it then one size fits all? Well, here's a, here's a picture from Belgium, but I could show similar pictures from all of the other countries. What is this? This is the distribution of what fraction of your R&D the government pays. The hump on the left-hand side are those guys who applied to get turned down, okay? You can see that the mass of the distribution is around 0.4.5, so most of the firms get roughly half of their cost paid. But there are some un unlucky firms who get 20% paid instead of half, and there are some really lucky ones who get 80% paid. Now, is it the same thing getting 80% paid or 20% paid or 40% paid? I think not. I think this is something that should be taken into account when modeling this kind of a policy, yet many researchers forget to do that. What is this? Well, this is from our exercise where we asked, well, what would happen if we took firms who got subsidies in these diff four different EU countries to the fifth one, namely Germany, and applied the German subsidy agency's rule to those firms? to take the first two rows in Belgium, or the Flemish region of Belgium, uh, firms get on average 40% subsidies. If they had applied in Germany, they would get 99% of their cost paid, if you believe our estimates. So Germany seems to be a very sort of benign one. Finland from 36 to 90%, the Netherlands from 34 to more than 100%. So clearly these countries, R&D agencies are treating firms who look the same differently. And we want to understand why that is. Okay, then about how to do evaluations. A few words about that. If ever we get there. Trouble is I don't remember my slides, so if we don't get them to work, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you something else. So the first thing you need and this has been emphasized by other speakers, is you need good data, okay? What's the second thing you need? Better data. <laughs> What's the third thing you need? Excellent data and plenty of it, okay? So I cannot emphasize enough how important this is. Without data, you cannot do anything. Now to have excellent data means not just to have a lot of it, but to have data that's informative to the question you're trying to answer. Okay, it has to be pertinent to the policy question you're looking at. But let me just give you an uh, idea of why it is important to have a lot of it. So there's a recent working paper looking at the effects of the UK R&D tax credit by many co-authors, John Van Rien and one of them. They start with 16 million Fermier observations. So you could call this big data. Okay, so well, wow, 16 million Fermier observations, I can do anything with that. Well, it turns out that out of this 16 million Fermier observations, that grand total leads to 56,000 times somebody claiming an R&D tax credit, okay? Now, obviously, you want to have a control group, but your control group is 15,950,000 observations out of your 16 million total. So suddenly, the action is a lot less than it looks like. And when, when you then look at what they do in terms of estimation, their estimation sample is 6,000 observations. Now that's still a reasonable number, but that's a different ballpark than 16 million. 
So we need a lot of data to start with because in the end, the amount of action is going to be limited in any given data set and we don't always know where it is. And especially in terms of uh, constructing the control groups that were discussed earlier, it is important to have a lot of raw material because you're going to end up throwing most of it out anyways. And you don't necessarily know in advance what it is that you want to use and what it is that you don't want to use. Okay, something that is very important uh, is that one has to understand what I call institutional details. That is, how does the program actually work? How it is run? How are the decisions made? Who's eligible, who's not? This is important, first of all, because unless you have this knowledge, you won't be able to frame your question in the right way. It's also going to be important because that gives you identification. To give you again an example, the, the UK R&D tax credit paper, they used the fact that the law shifted and there was a threshold below which the tax credit was less than, sorry, up, more than above it in terms of firm size. And the knowledge of this gave them uh, what's called a regression discontinuity possibility. So understanding the institutional details is crucial. The job of the civil servants running the evaluation program or running the agency is to, is to teach the researchers the institutional details. They need to know it, otherwise they're not going to be of much use. Finally, it is not enough to have the the best econometrician around, because we need economic theory here. Think back to my example of financial market imperfections. We really want to understand what the mechanisms are, how, how this all works, how are the incentives of firms uh, affected, and that calls for economic theory, although in the end we want to play with numbers and, and do statistical analysis. So we do need those as well. Uh, and there, it's crucial to understand how to tailor your tools to the question at hand. So something you should remember is that there's no such thing as the treatment estimator. Okay? There might be a paper published two months ago and everybody's talking about that paper and it might be exactly the wrong estimator for your purposes. What works for you might not work for somebody else uh, running a similar policy in a different country or for your successor five years down the road when the policy has changed. We really need to understand how to match the institutions and the estimator. And so the best estimator is going to depend on the data, the institutional environment, and the question you want to answer. To give you an example, let me talk of something else than R&D support for a moment. Uh, we have this long ongoing project where we're interested in what happens, wh what are the effects of somebody becoming unemployed in the middle of the crisis. The crisis we're interested in is the one Finland experienced 25 years ago, but think of Portugal or Spain. Now, it turns out there's a number of estimators people have used. They've used OLS regression. They've looked at plants that have been closed. They've used that same 
in a different way. And finally, something that people have also done is they said, look, this is difficult. Let us find people who are identical. So let's look at identical twins where one of them got unemployed and the other one didn't. Trouble is, you can do all of these. None of them answers exactly the question you want to answer. Okay? All of them are biased in the language of econometricians, even in the best of circumstances. They will answer questions that are closely related to the one I'm posing on my slide, but not exactly this one. And with this example, I just want to highlight that it is actually very important that you tailor your estimator to your question to understand what it is that you're doing. To give another example from the R&D uh, support area, think back to this paper by John Van Rienen and others on the UK tax credit. So they have this uh, wedge depending on firm size, and the idea is that firms just above and below are otherwise exactly the same, but others get a bigger tax credit. Imagine that they get a good answer with their estimator. What does that, what does that, what is the question that answer applies to? It tells us how much more R&D or how many more patents you get from firms of exactly that size when they get an R&D credit, tax credit that is so much bigger as it was in the UK, I think 10 percentage points. It doesn't tell you about whether the policy in general works or not. It answers a very specific question for a particular type of firms, maybe very well. Finally, something that has come up many times today is what impact do you want to measure? Well, obviously, it needs to be policy relevant. So, you know, there are investment schemes, regional investment schemes that are motivated by employment concerns. Well, should you measure investment or should you measure employment? Timing we've talked about, so I'm not going to touch that, but uh, I think back to my engineering example in 30 years, and obviously that can be a challenge. And then finally, you need to put the outcome in context of what else is going on. So is additionality enough? Are you happy if you get an answer to that? Or should you think in terms of welfare? Can you answer that bigger question? Should we think about effects on others rather than the recipient of the support? So should we be worried that if you give me more support, I'm crowding out Ryan Hilde's research or the other way around? Should we think about this actually not being so much about increasing the R&D of existing firms, but rather about luring more firms to do R&D in your location? So I used Austria as, as an example already previously. I'm going to use it again. So here's an ad from The Economist. Last fall, you can't read it, but the only thing you need to read is the stuff in the box. They claim, whether it's true or not, I don't know, tax advantages work, and that they make Austria even more attractive. Okay? <laughs> so, clearly the Austrian government uses R&D tax credit not just to increase R&D by the firms already in Austria, but they spend extra money to advertise it in The Economist with the idea of getting somebody to move to Austria. So, when I look at what I see in terms of state aid evaluation, I, I see things moving in the right direction. Uh, being impatient, things are moving too slowly, but at least they're moving in the right direction. What's needed is a combination of skills and tools, but I would really emphasize 
understanding of the particularities of every situation. I would really emphasize data, and I would emphasize preparation. So it's way better to get people who know about how to evaluate policies to be engaged already when the policies are designed, to design them in such a way that they're as effective as possible and as easy to evaluate as possible, because we've heard today over and over again that there are all kinds of challenges in the evaluation, even in the best of circumstances. Finally, one has to understand that this is learning by doing. It's learning by doing by member states. It's learning by doing by DGCOMP. It's learning by doing by us researchers as well. Okay? Uh, and so nothing is going to be perfect. My hope is that we see better evaluations down the road than we saw in the past. And by the time I'm retired, things are way better than they are now. Uh, these things are complementary. Uh, so having, investing in just one or the other alone is not going to be sufficient. Uh, so feedback from member states to DGCOM, from researchers to both, and from everybody to the researchers is the only way to get things going. Thank you very much. Thank you, Otto. So I think you made a very good case of why there needs to be more discussions between academics and uh, both policy, uh, policy and, and uh, agencies uh, here, which is exactly what we have here today. Uh, but I think you also made it very clear that, there, that you need different types of uh, academics. So you need academic input on the data side, the econometricians, but also the theory side. And also on the policy side, you need uh, knowledge on institutions, but also no knowledge on what actually the policy questions are. So lots of on the two sides uh, here, but in any case, discussion between the two levels is, is very important. So given that we now have the floor with all these different types of stakeholders, I think it's uh, time to open the floor for, again, a session of uh, questions, comments, answers. Uh, so we still have a bit of time, although we are not so much, but we can take some time for a question. So please, or is everybody... Really, end of the yeah, Nicola. Thank you. Uh, come from Digi Competition. I uh, found the free presentation very, very interesting. Uh, would have a question for uh, for all free uh, free academics. Uh, um, I don't think you mentioned uh, Dr. Kontrompis. You did not mention specifically possible impacts on competition and markets. I mean, your presentation is, uh, I think, extremely interesting and. Uh, in a way, by the way, you, you may want to comment also in a way that uh, currently we decide what areas uh, deserve uh, state aid or not. Currently, uh, public consultations are organized to, to know whether public oper private operators uh, would be willing to invest in the coming three years. And that's basically the way we, uh, whereas I've seen you studied you, <laughs> you had another type of probably more rigorous kind of approach. But... Uh, uh, whereas we are more about, but specifically on the, on the issue of uh, uh, impact on competition, uh, does it change anything? Whereas the aid goes to the incumbent or the telecom sector, or uh, is it something you looked at, or you may you want to look at, or you think we should look at? Uh, on the energy uh, side of the story, indeed, very provocative uh, elements, and I was uh, very surprised and. Uh, 
the 20 billion versus 15 billion figures that I will uh, keep in mind, <laughs> which I found very relevant. Um, one element in the new uh, energy uh, guidelines, of course, you are aware of, is the introduction of the principle of, of uh, auctions between uh, renewable technologies. So I, from one of your slides, I gather that you think it's a good idea, uh, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that. And uh, also, maybe they're moving to the evaluation of that. Do you think that it's something that uh, we should evaluate? And if so, how, if you have some uh, tips <laughs> to provide us? Um, and on Professor uh, Tovainen, um, many, many thanks. It's, it's very enlightening. Uh, I mean, you, you, you recall, I think, the, what Renilde told us at the start of the, this morning is that we should look at heterogeneities. Basically, it's not like uh, one uh, black and white situation, but we'll have a set of uh, recipients. And, uh, uh, but my question here is really from the policymaker side. When do you think that it's, it's becoming too much, basically? Because the, uh, because the policy, already we have to convince the policymakers that we have to do these impact evaluations, and then we're going to tell them, yes, but uh, I'm going to present my results over five pages, where indeed for the SMEs in this sector is this way. In this. So in your experience, when uh, these details become too much and uh, too difficult to digest? Yeah. I'm going to collect click a little bit more questions. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you all very much for the very, very uh, interesting presentations. It appears that data is the key word, the operative word for everything. So I wonder who is more suitable to gather such data? Good question. Any more questions? No? Okay, so shall we go first to the digital and the, um, and the energy one? Because both questions are actually a bit similar in the sense of how should you also combine the structure of the markets uh, with the effectiveness of, of uh, state aid uh, here. So both in digital and in energy. You first. So the, the question was about um, how would the interventions affect the competition in the market. So this is a peculiar situation in the telecommunications market. So what's happened is that there's a wholesale uh, market where operators can rent the lines that go to, to the houses uh, and they make their, their, their money, they, they return on the investment base based on that. The reason they do not go to invest in rural areas is because they do not believe that there's going to be a high take-up rate so that the investment will be returned in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So this is precisely the, the, the nature of the intervention. Because of the willingness to pay goes to the, the Facebooks, the Googles, the service providers. And because the landlords can capitalize on this, uh, on, the, on this willingness to pay in urban districts, the operators are left in need of this uh, intervention. So one way to think about that is to use collaborative schemes. So they could split some areas that would not be, you know, you could not really have competition in, in, in the first place and just offer a service on a municipal basis or on a collaborative scheme basis. And the other is just to finance the investment and then leave someone to, to cover the maintenance and operating costs. So the market itself seems to work well, well, at least in, in the UK that we've been looking at, and, and the prices are uh, competitive. So this is why they're not going into these, these areas. So the interventions will affect the market, uh, but they will cover those regions that would never be, be covered by um, the market itself. Yeah. Um, on the uh, on the auctions, yeah, they, uh, they are obviously an improvement over the uh, uh, over the status quo. 
um, because they help you to select the, the most efficient operators and uh, those that are most efficient in, uh, in building them and to uh, kind of bring down the, uh, the cost of the technology further. Um, but they don't solve two issues. They, they do not solve the, the issue of building a good technology portfolio because kind of the government still decides uh, which technologies to support. Or even worse, they are kind of technology neutral. And I think technology neutrality, and that would be also an, uh, an interesting point to discuss with DG Competition on that. I think technology neutrality for a innovation support scheme, which I would say renewable support is, is not the right thing to do because there are different technologies at very different stages of maturity. Wind and solar alone will not save the show for keeping the, uh, the climate uh, targets. So we should invest into different technologies and that requires technology specific support schemes. Here somebody has to decide on them and we need some sort of, an, of a mechanism to, uh, to distribute support to different innovation schemes in, uh, in energy technology. And it also does not, uh, so, and auctions also don't solve the issue of, uh, of overinvestment into, uh, into, uh, into member states because they are kind of, uh, you give a volume target and then you auction off the volume, so they don't solve the, uh, the coordination device. So they are better than what we had before, but uh, there's still some, some way to go. On the evaluation, uh, that's, an, that's an interesting question. Um, I think uh, the most important thing is to, to get the criteria right. So what, what do we want to achieve with renewable support schemes? And um, there is the, the classic school that says, well, we want a certain share of renewables in the, uh, in the fuel mix. Um, but then the, the world around changes and, uh, and we do not actually have a very good justification why 20% or 30% is a good number. And again, I think innovation is, uh, is what really counts. So what we should target to have uh, support schemes for is to, to bring down the cost of this technology in order to keep Chinese coal underground. I think that's what's keeping the planet cool, I repeat myself. On the, on the data sink, um, I had an interesting discussion around lunch before on, on this data thing, and I think ex ante is, uh, is the most important thing to, to, get the, uh, to get the right data in place. Uh, those that demand the support should bring their data. So uh, if you have uh, the, uh, there's always somebody that, that demands the support and they should make sure that, uh, that the data is available. Just to take the German example, we want to have now 1 million uh, electric vehicles by 2020. So if the industry uh, wants this money, they should make sure that the, uh, that the data is made uh, publicly available and can be analyzed. So uh, that might help to, uh, to resolve some of information asymmetric problems. Do you want to res respond to that? So, uh, heterogeneity, when is too much, too much? Um, at some point, short answer, uh, it's going to be very case dependent. So, to give you an example, in, in our work on R&D subsidies, we wanted to allow very flexible heterogeneity, and then turns out the data tells us there isn't any. Uh, so, we went back to just one effect. Uh, it's still going to vary, but in different ways than we initially thought. Uh, and so here one really has to sort of, how should I put, this is the handicrafts part of doing econometrics. You, you, you have to have everything in place and then you start doing your work and you learn what your data is telling you. Uh, and then you have to stop at, at some reasonable point in time. 
In terms of guiding where to look at, uh, I think we have some prior understanding of what the important margins are, what the important types of heterogeneity might be, and, and that should obviously guide us without, without of course, blocking other uh, sort of avenues necessarily. Then on, on this data issue, uh, I think uh, it really depends a little bit on the case. So let me talk about R&D subsidies. Uh, there I think it's in some sense potentially straightforward because we're talking about the government dishing out money. And so then the government has a lot of the information that the researcher would want to have. Uh, the government's also run statistical agencies. And, and then to give you a, a concrete example, nowadays in Finland, all firm level support uh, information is actually deposited in Statistics Finland and it's available to, to researchers who get access to those data. So obviously you cannot just walk in, but, but once you've gone through the uh, accreditation process, you will get access to those data. It's not 100% perfect, so, so we have separate access to TECES data because we want to see the decisions in more detail, and in particular we want to know who applied just to get turned down. But, but those data are also at Statistics Finland, and, and I think that kind of platforms are the way to go. Uh, then it gets more difficult when, when the ownership is dispersed within the industry. Uh, but again, I think uh, government is sort of a neutral player, or potentially at least so, and, and it has ways of uh, convincing firms to relinquish data. So I, I would look for these kind of solutions. Okay, thank you. So on this heterogeneity, when it is too much, I would also like to, to add that um, it's really a matter of finding the heterogeneity that matters, uh, and that requires also, again, I think, uh, a good communication between the researchers and, and the policymakers to know what are the really relevant uh, heterogeneity uh, issues that you would like to, to examine too. And if you focus on the right ones, it will not be too much, I think. <laughs> okay, so um, I think... Um, to answer the question of do we make did we make any progress after two years uh, here, I think um, we can be optimistic in the sense that yes, we're making progress. Uh, you can still discuss whether it's it's fast enough, but I think we definitely are in the right way. Um, and thanks to definitely policy pushes like uh, uh, like what DG Comp has initiated here, uh, still I think we can speed up uh, the process uh, here and I think that meetings like this um, was also very clear that this kind of communications between uh, researchers, between policy uh, makers but also agencies is very important to help to speed up the process in terms of getting more data, better data but also better use of the data uh, here. So I think these kind of meetings that we had today were really very helpful to uh, to, to help to progress uh, this agenda. Um, um, judging a bit by how much interest we had, we were a bit surprised by how many applications we got for participation. We had to turn down some of them, even if we had a bigger room. Uh, so that already signals that there is a lot of, of um, uh, interest in this. So I think uh, our task is to keep on organizing these kinds of, uh, of, of interactions uh, here because that will really help to, uh, to, to keep the momentum uh, and develop it further. So thanks a lot for your participation uh, in this. Uh, I hope you enjoyed 
enjoyed it, uh, and that this will also continue um, in future with uh, networking uh, here. And secondly, also I'd like to thank all the all the presenters of the first session as well as of the second session for uh, uh, initiating these kind of interactions that we uh, uh, that we hoped for. And thirdly, I wish you all good luck with getting back home because <laughs> getting here was difficult, but get, getting back home may also be uh, difficult uh, here. So thanks for, for participating and uh, make. And I would like to signal that in the future we will try to uh, to be a host again uh, as much as possible. All the presentations will also be available on our website, and also the policy brief that you we will provide a link to that uh, as well here, so um, that we have all the information of today. Uh, available on the website. Thanks a lot and see you next time.